Good morning. Happy New Year to all of you. I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 32. My name is Ryan Chase, one of the pastors here. According to the internet, which is more or less reliable, the average person spends five years of their life waiting in lines. And of those five years, I I didn't check the math, so uh, of those five years, it's estimated roughly six months of your life are spent waiting in traffic. Now, again, I didn't check the numbers on this, but it's not hard to believe that waiting is a significant portion of your life, isn't it? You wait in your car at red lights and in traffic, and you wait on hold for customer service, and you wait in lines at the grocery store and at the bank and airport security, and you wait for a package to arrive, or you wait for Christmas Day to finally come, or you wait for a loved one to return home, or some other big event in your life. To, to wait means to remain in this state of expectation until someone or something arrives, and that arrival is anticipated to change things. When that someone or that something comes, then things change. Traffic starts to move, or you finally board the plane, only to sit and wait for something else, and then the plane takes off, and finally that's there, and then you wait to land, and it seems like life is just waiting after waiting after waiting. Or somebody said, adulthood is saying, after this week, things will slow down over and over for the rest of your life. Waiting is a reminder to us that things are often not yet quite the way we wish they were. Waiting is hard, isn't it? It's a given that you will wait. You'll you'll wait a lot in your life, apparently. The question is, how will you wait? Will you gripe and groan? Will you cut in line? Will you lose hope and give up? What will waiting do to you while you wait? Will you grow impatient and bitter and jaded, or will you grow increasingly content and patient and joyful? Advent, as you know, means arrival. It means coming. And as with any arrival, the arrival of the Savior of the world is preceded by waiting. Advent is to us an annual reminder that we live in a fallen world where things are not yet as they ought to be. And yet, because Christ has already come, it is a reminder to us that things are no longer the way they used to be. As we sing, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. During Advent, we remembered the first arrival of Christ, and we give intentional thought and time to rekindling our longing for his second coming. And though another Christmas day is coming gone, we have one more song in our playlist of songs for the Savior from Luke 1 and 2. This is Simeon's song that we come to this morning. It's known in Latin as Nunc Dimittis. Those are the first two words of the Latin translation, meaning now dismiss or 
as the opening line says in English, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. And if you have ever grown weary from waiting, if the world's brokenness or your remaining sin overwhelms you, if chronic pain or relational conflicts discourage you, or if you're, you're ever tempted to think that God is slow to fulfill His promises, or God is inactive and you just can't see where or how He's at work in your life, then you need to pay attention to Simeon and his song. I want to invite you to stand with me if you're able out of our reverence for God and His Word as I read Luke 2, 25 through 32. These are the words of God. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word by which you reveal to us that same Christ child that Simeon held in his arms so that what Simeon saw with his eyes when he prayed, my eyes have seen your salvation, we too, by your grace, by your spirit's work and through your word might say today, our eyes have seen your salvation. Make it so for us, O oh God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Other than the few sentences that Luke devotes to Simeon right here in these verses, we don't know anything else about this man. But Luke's brief description is significant. Look at verse 25 where we're told that Simeon was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. Waiting was a defining characteristic of Simeon's life. Think about this. Luke has three words to describe Simeon. What three words is he going to choose? Righteous, devout, and waiting. Waiting. And to understand what that means, we need a thumbnail sketch of Israel's history. Of all the peoples and nations on earth, Israel was unique. 2 Samuel 7, 23 through 24 says, And who is like your people Israel? The one nation, the only nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods, and you established for yourself, your people Israel, to be your people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. Everything about Israel as a nation, 
their existence, their preservation, their location. Everything about them was unique because God himself supernaturally and sovereignly acted toward them on their behalf. God chose a man named Abraham and blessed him and promised to make him into a great nation. And when his descendants had multiplied greatly and were enslaved in the land of Egypt, it was God who acted to redeem them. Throughout Israel's history, it was the one true God who made heaven and earth, who acted over and over and over to reveal himself to Israel, to protect Israel, to provide for Israel, to preserve Israel. But in Simeon's day, the city of Jerusalem was occupied by foreign invaders, the the Romans. And the Romans were only the most recent oppressors. After hundreds and hundreds of years of God's patience toward Israel for their unfaithfulness and their idolatry and their rebellion against God, God had used a couple of powerful foreign nations to judge his people, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And while exiles would return back to the land and rebuild the temple and rebuild the wall around the city, they continued to be oppressed by foreign nations for hundreds of years. They spent 500 years first under the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Syrians and finally the Romans. Under the Syrians, any Jew who openly worshipped God was threatened with death. Their temple was Though it had been rebuilt, it was then defiled as a pagan shrine. And so by Simeon's day, Jerusalem is run by the Romans. They would meddle with Jewish religious affairs. They, they would, the Romans would appoint the Jewish high priest or take him down when they didn't like him. The corrupt and greedy Roman tax collectors all over Jerusalem were a constant reminder that the Jews were captives in their own city, in the land that God had promised to them. Instead of freely enjoying the fruit of that land God had given them, they lived under the heavy, oppressive hand of their Roman captors. So so just think about the context Simeon's living in. For 700 years, Israel had been tyrannized by idolatrous and violent foreigners. 700 years. For 400 years, there had not been a prophetic word from God. The mighty works of God in the past were, in Simeon's day, a faint echo. Surely, many Jews around Simeon doubted whether those things had ever happened, doubted whether God's promises would ever come true. If God was so good and so great, why was he so distant and so silent? All of that context is in view here when verse 25 says Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That was the world Simeon lived in, broken, full of unfulfilled hopes and desires, a weary world of waiting for the arrival of one who would make everything right. And so Simeon's encounter here in Luke 2 with the Christ child offers hope. Hope to the world, hope to all who are weary and waiting. What about you? What are you waiting for? What suffering or affliction or evil do you long to be over? What blessing or joy are you longing to receive? The return of a 
wayward child, or as Greg was talking about, the, the reconciliation of a relationship with a father, some blessing, some gift from God. How, how would you finish the sentence? My life will be so much better as soon as fill in the blank. Simeon's song resounds with good news for you. Every desire of your longing heart is satisfied in the arrival of Jesus Christ. Every desire of your longing heart is satisfied in the arrival of Jesus Christ. And from this text, I want to show you how then to wait. How to wait. I have three points. Wait by faith, wait in the Spirit, and wait for Christ. First, wait by faith. Luke draws our attention to Simeon's faith when he describes him as righteous and devout and waiting for the consolation of Israel there in verse 25. After 700 years of tyranny and oppression, why wouldn't Simeon think like sadly too many Christians today tend to think, the world is just going to go from bad to worse. Things have always been bad and they're just getting worse and they will go on getting worse forever. What hope did Simeon have that God would redeem Israel? and act again as he had in the past. Well, Simeon expected God to act because Simeon believed God's promises. And all of the faithful Jews, like Simeon, who paid attention to the prophets, understood God had not completely and permanently abandoned his people. He had for sure fulfilled all of his threats and all of his warnings of what would happen, the judgment that would come for their Sin, but Simeon knew that God had also made promises to his people of salvation and restoration. Simeon was waiting for God to do what he had promised, to console, to comfort, to restore his people after the judgment he had brought upon them for their rebellion. He, he probably knew and prayed and clung to promises like Jeremiah thirty three twenty six, for I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. Or Isaiah 52, 9 through 10, break forth together into singing you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Or promises of a new covenant like Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Listen to this promise. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. To say that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel is to say Simeon lived by faith. He expected God to fulfill his promises, to remove his judgment, to return with his presence to Israel, to restore again his favor. And because he believed God, his life was marked by active devotion. This is why Luke calls Simeon righteous and devout. Simeon was counted righteous just like his forefather Abraham. That, that should evoke that scene in Genesis 15, 6, where it says, Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Simeon, too, was counted righteous because Simeon, like Abraham, believed God. 
That's what that means. does not mean he was sinless, he was perfect, he had his life together. It means he believed God and he was counted righteous. And Simeon's devotion, that is his steadfast love for God, his faithful obedience to God, his perseverance in prayer and worship while he waited, that was the expression of his faith. Simeon worshipped while he waited. Look, Anyone can get upset about the current state of the world. Anybody can get mad about the way things are, and anybody can wish things were different. Everyone in the world can think of ways that his or her life could be better right now. There's nothing special about wishing things were different or better. None of that makes you righteous or produces devotion. Righteousness and devotion, these are signs that Simeon was trusting God. He believed God to do what he has promised. And though Simeon's appearance in Scripture is so brief, his impact is profound. In Simeon, we see an example that this is how we are to live in this world. Waiting by faith, clinging to all of God's promises in hope and confidence. Second, wait in the Spirit. In verse 25, Luke highlights something else about Simeon. He says, the Holy Spirit was upon him. In fact, Luke obviously intends to draw our attention to the Holy Spirit and his activity because he mentions the Spirit three times here in rapid succession. Just listen as I read verses 25 through 27. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. The Holy Spirit is unmistakably active here in this text, in Simeon's life, empowering and revealing and directing. Don't miss the significance of those three verses given the context of Jerusalem and Simeon's day. Remember, God had not spoken to Israel for 400 years. And suddenly, as Luke records here, there is a burst of activity from the Holy Spirit. God, once again, asserting himself and communicating himself and intervening in Israel for their good. It's like seismic activity that signals the coming eruption of a volcano. The Spirit's activity in Luke 1 and 2 indicated something massive was about to happen in the story of God. As they would say in Narnia, Aslan is on the move. What is the focus of the Holy Spirit's activity here? Notice that all of the Spirit's work, filling Simeon in verse 25, revealing something to Simeon in verse 26, leading Simeon into the temple in verse 27, all the Holy Spirit's work is directing Simeon to the Christ child. And that's what the Holy Spirit always does. He always works to prepare hearts to receive Jesus. He announces Jesus. He reveals Jesus. He points to Jesus. As Charles Spurgeon said, it is the chief office of the Holy Spirit to glorify Christ. He does many things, but this is what he aims at in all of them, to glorify Christ. Or as Jesus would say in John 16, 14, he, that is the Holy Spirit, he will glorify Christ me. Just 
Consider how coincidental verses 27 through 28 seem from a human perspective. He came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. So Simeon just happened to be in the right place at the right time to run into the right child whom he and all Israel had been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for. And all of that lined up with a word he had personally received from the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he saw with his own eyes the promised Messiah. Luke is shockingly silent about the details that I at least would be curious to know. How did Simeon recognize Mary and Joseph? What did Simeon say that caused these parents to just hand their newborn child over to a stranger? We're simply told Simeon was led by the Holy Spirit. What if he hadn't been in the temple on that day? Or what if he was in the temple but he was looking the wrong way when Joseph and Mary walked by? Or what if he mistook some other baby and got his hopes up and thought maybe this is the one? You think about all of those things from a human perspective. None of those questions seem to be of any concern to Luke at all. Everything is explained by this phrase, he came in the Spirit into the temple. That answers everything. What seems coincidental from our perspective is not coincidence at all. It's God asserting himself. God breaking in after 400 years of silence to point to this baby as the Savior of the world. Now, of course, Simeon was unique in one sense. He he had a personal promise that, as far as we know, nobody else had from God that the Messiah would arrive in his lifetime. But Simeon's faith, his recognition of Jesus and his trust in that child is actually just like your faith. It was the result of the Spirit's work. Just as the Spirit led Simeon to Christ, The Spirit leads you to Christ. And though waiting can be hard, when you wait by faith and in the Spirit like Simeon, you don't wait alone. The Spirit of God empowers you and the Spirit of God sustains you and upholds you and leads you, as Peter writes in 1 Peter 5.10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. This should encourage you when waiting seems hard. You never need to wait in your own strength. You don't even believe in your own strength. Your faith is a gift from God and a work of the Spirit, so wait in the Spirit. And finally, wait for Christ. This is the focal point of Simeon's song, verse 27. He came in the spirit into the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. In a moment, all of Simeon's waiting and longing 
and expecting was over. All his hopes were fulfilled. And he says, I can die now. I can die in peace. The one thing I've been hoping for has come. But think about this. When Simeon says in verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation, what did he actually see with his eyes? Did did Simeon see the consolation of Israel? Did he see Israel restored to her former glory? Did he see the people of God released from their captors? Or did he see a, a faithful king like David sitting on the throne and ruling there? No, he, he saw a tiny, helpless, eight-day-old baby and held that baby in his arms. And yet he could look at that baby and say, my eyes have seen your salvation. The consolation of Israel, the object of Simeon's faith, the focus of the Holy Spirit's work, the fulfillment of every promise of God, the joy of every longing heart is this baby, Jesus himself. Even as a baby, Jesus was and he remains the fullness of God's salvation come in flesh. He's the visible, tangible appearing of God's grace in history. As Paul writes, he's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus, who existed forever as God and took on humanity at a point in history without losing any of his godness, Jesus is God's promised salvation. And so we sing, Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth, thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Jesus himself is all of that. He is what all the nations desire. He is the joy that your longing heart craves. He is the object of our faith. So Unlike figures like Buddha or Muhammad, Jesus does not merely come to exemplify the ideal life or teach us his philosophy on how you can live a better life. He comes to be the object of your trust, the object of your desire, the source of your salvation. That means to experience God's salvation, which Simeon said he saw with his eyes, you don't merely follow Jesus' advice. You cling to Jesus himself. You trust in Jesus personally. And every legitimate longing and desire finds its ultimate fulfillment in him. With Jesus' arrival on earth, the light of God's glory has come into the world. As Simeon says in verse 32, this salvation God prepared in the presence of all peoples. And this is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. He's both the consolation that Israel longed for and waited for, and he is the revelation of God's salvation to all the nations of earth. Jesus is God's promise to restore Israel fulfilled. And in Jesus, God's promise to bless all the families of earth through Abraham is also fulfilled. But how would Jesus accomplish that consolation of Israel? 
and salvation of the world. This text points to two ways. Think of these as two sides of the same coin. This, this is significant. First, Jesus accomplished salvation by living in our place. All of this scene unfolds, verse 27 says, in the temple. Simeon comes in the spirit into the temple. And what were Mary and Joseph doing there? They had brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. We see earlier in the text, back in verse 21, Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day as the law prescribed in Leviticus 12.3. And Luke 2.22-23 says, When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. All of these details, Luke records, these are vital. They're not trivial. As a man, Jesus perfectly fulfilled God's righteous law. Paul writes in Galatians 4, 4 through 5, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. From his birth, Jesus was blameless, so that he could become the spotless sacrifice for your sins. When you trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, God credits you as righteous. He covers you with the righteousness of Christ. Jesus also accomplishes this salvation by dying in your place. And Simeon hints at the shocking way in which Jesus would ultimately achieve this salvation. Verses 34 through 35, it says, Simeon blessed them. Keep in mind, this is a blessing. Though it doesn't sound like it at first. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon is full of the Spirit, led by the Spirit. He prophesies about the death of Jesus and the pain that will bring to Mary, and yet the blessing that it will be to the world. Who could have imagined that God's ultimate deliverance would arrive in the world as a weak and helpless child who would ultimately triumph over God's enemies through his death? And yet, this is what God had promised. Simeon's song echoes remarkably Isaiah 52, 9 through 10. Break forth into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. That's the consolation of Israel. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. Simeon says, in the presence of all the peoples and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Just four verses after that song from Isaiah about the consolation and comfort of Israel, Isaiah says this about the Messiah. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind, he writes a few verses later in chapter 53, verse 3, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Many expected the consolation of Israel to come in the form of a conquering king, but listen again to Isaiah's words, how God's Savior would comfort his people. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. So here we have this language of healing and peace. Sorrows and griefs being borne away by one who would take all of our sins on himself. Because the wrath-bearing, sin-canceling death of Jesus was the only way to make the world right. His death purchased the consolation of Israel that Simeon longed for. His death makes unrestricted access to the Father possible for all the nations. And Jesus' death assures you that if you are united to him by faith, that one day all your waiting will be over. All your longings will be fulfilled in Christ. And so let every unfulfilled desire of your heart today point you to Christ. He is the one we wait for. Some of you have never seen Jesus as glorious. Simeon could say, my eyes have seen your salvation. Can you say that? My eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. God is inviting you today to behold his salvation in the person of Christ. Some of you maybe have grown weary, waiting, trusting, hoping. You don't want to hear again, just trust God's promises. Just wait for him to act. Look at Jesus today and know God is not slow to act, as some understand slowness. He came in the fullness of time. And he will come again on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. He has given you his own word. As the closing verses of Revelation say, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. And the church responds, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Come, Lord Jesus. That is the longing of our hearts. To see you. To experience what your word promises to us that when you appear, we will be like you because we will see you as you are. How we long for that day when all of our waiting is over, all of our longing, all of our expectations, all of our desires are fulfilled when everything is made right. Would you rekindle in our hearts longing for you, that we would live our days in joyful and expectant and confident hope and faith, full of your spirit, walking in righteousness and devotion to you because we know you have provided the only Savior for the world. He has come and you have fulfilled your promises and you'll do it again. We pray that the name of Jesus would be exalted to the ends of the earth. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart, be exalted, we pray. 
Amen.